You're going to love this. Just love it. We'll see. We'll see. But I am not scared. Never am. Get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you. Live on a rainy Los Angeles afternoon on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the Progressive Voices channel. On Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, and iTunes. Yes, you can run, but you cannot hide from the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us here this afternoon. Uh, Some breaking news before we start. There will not, not be an indictment against the New York City cop who placed African-American Eric Garner in a chokehold that killed him back in uh, back in July, uh, though apparently, by the way, the man who filmed the incident, guy by the name of Ramsey Orta, he's being indicted. <laughs> so I guess you can't. Fi- it's a separate matter uh, that he's being indicted on. Uh, he was charged on a weapons charge two weeks later that he says was uh, retaliation for having filmed the incident where Eric Garner was choked to death. A grand jury was somehow able to uh, to indict him, but just not able to indict the white cop once again who killed a black man in New York City. Uh, we are watching that today, and uh, as protests uh, against what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, continue across the country, we will keep our eyes on that as we move forward. Uh, also, unspinning climate change coverage. We will talk in a little bit with renowned climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann, creator of the now infamous hockey stick graph. I think it was made famous in Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, but believe it or not, I've never seen Inconvenient Truth. Uh, Anyway, that hockey stick graph, of course, illustrates the alarming rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere after the dawn of the industrial age. Uh, We will talk to Michael Mann about the difficulty of reporting the facts on climate change, particularly in a fossil fuel funded world that we now live in, uh, which doesn't want to talk about the issue at all. And a media which relies on that uh, those fossil fuel companies uh, and media, of course, which is far more concerned with ratings than reporting on actual news. So. Dr. Michael Mann will join us in a little bit. And, of course, uh, as always, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Speaking of the difficulty of reporting on climate change issues, Desi will uh, be joining us as record rain finally arrives out here in California 
amidst record drought out here in California. Also, what's up with the low oil prices? And this week, marking the 30th anniversary of the world's worst industrial accident. Uh, Also this week, by the way, it's the 50th anniversary of what has become known as the free speech movement on the heels of Mario Savio's now famous speech up at University of California, Berkeley. We'll see if we have time for that. Uh, but before all of that, last week, we uh, we were still following election 2014 because election 2014, in case you don't know, in case the media hasn't told you because they haven't, election 2014 is still ongoing. Uh, we talked amongst other uh, issues uh, about uh, last week, this amazing race in Maine where 21 ballots showed up out of nowhere and ended up flipping the recount from a Democrat to a Republican in a Maine Senate race. It's really it's an incredible mystery uh, that is still ongoing. And you should check out the full story at Bradblog.com because I suspect we'll have more on this in the future. The town clerk who oversaw the uh, both the hand counting. This is a town that actually hand counts paper ballots. Lucky voters there. Uh, that town of Long Island, Maine, uh, had counted 171 ballots uh, at the end of the night, 171 people who signed into the books, the poll books on the voter manifest. The town clerk was at the one polling place in polling place in Long Island all weekend long, not all weekend, all election day long. She's the one who signed off on the count at the end of the night. And uh, then when they went to do a recount, They found in that one little town, 21 new ballots had showed up, all of them for the Republican. No one can explain it. I've been trying to get a comment from the town clerk there, Brenda Singo, um, to get some idea of their their hand count procedures. Uh, The Senate, when it reconvenes uh, this week, the state Senate, when it reconvenes, uh, will have a committee look into this. Four Republicans, three Democrats. So they'll probably side with the Republican who has now been certified since these new mysterious votes showed up. But Brenda Singo won't answer my questions even about the procedures they used at the end of the night. She's been very kind. She's replied to my emails to say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to be testifying before the Senate. I'll talk to you. I'll answer all your questions after I testify on Tuesday. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry, they've moved my testimony to a following week, Tuesday, next week. I'll talk to you then. And she won't explain to me why she won't answer these questions. Like, what party affiliation is she? Like, how many people actually observed the counting at the end of the night? Very strange. She is not under a legal investigation as far as I know, so I don't know why she wouldn't answer me. But anyway, um, more on that ahead. Check out those details at Brad Blog because it really is an amazing story. Uh, This week, we began the recount in Oregon's GMO ballot measure. That ballot measure appears to have lost, according to the uh, optical scan computer counts, by, um, where where were we here, about 809 votes out of 1.5 million paper ballots cast. Those are now being recounted across the state by hand. That's very good news, very good news for voters in Oregon because they'll be able to oversee their own elections and make sure that it was tabulated correctly by the faulty computers. Interestingly enough, uh, Monsanto who paid millions of dollars to block this uh, 
Measure 92 up in, um, up in Oregon. They sent people out to oversee the hand count themselves, and those people were apparently thrown out of the hand count because I guess Oregon uh, law says you have to be a state voter. Not sure I like that idea. I think anybody ought to be able to publicly oversee uh, an election. But that's what's going on in Oregon. Theoretically, good news for the voters there because by the end of the uh, week or two, they will actually know who won that thing. That would be nice. Uh, here's less good news. I talked a little bit about this last week in Arizona. I talked somewhat inartfully about it because it's a somewhat complicated story, and I promised more on it this week. We're going to be talking to uh, Bill Reisner, an attorney in Arizona, about this very uh, case momentarily. Um, in Arizona, the it's the last U.S. House race to be decided, essentially, uh, 220,000 people voted in the uh, second congressional district for the U.S. House seat in Arizona. This was the one that was formally filled by Congresswoman Gabby Giffords until she was shot, critically shot. And uh, uh, in that incident, that town hall incident in Tucson, Arizona, back in 2011 that killed six and wounded 13, she ended up, of course, having to leave office. She was replaced by... Democrat Ron Barber, a top staffer of hers, he won in a special election. And then he ran in the general election in 2012 against Martha McSally. He defeated her, but just barely back in 2012. And it was a rematch this year in 2014. 220,000 votes were cast. And right now, the certified uh, results as of Monday of this week have McSally defeating uh, the Republican McSally defeating the Democrat Barber by just 161 votes out of 220,000 votes cast. Now, there are a number of problems in this election. Amongst them, uh, failed memory cards on the optical scanners in Cochise County. The second district is made up of two counties, Pima County, uh, which is Tucson, and Cochise County, which is uh, more conservative and much smaller. The ballots cast in early voting in Cochise County could not be counted on election night. They actually had to helicopter out the memory cards to another county to have them tallied by computers elsewhere. Mind you, they had paper ballots. They could have just counted the damn paper ballots. But no, they had to hire a helicopter, get the computer memory cards, fly them to another counter to put them into a computer elsewhere. Uh, that was just one problem uh, that happened. Now there are all kinds of questions about uh, ballots that weren't tallied, that were uh, provisional ballots. Uh, among some of them, voters who showed up to vote and were told uh, that it, even though they were in the wrong precinct, they were told, oh, this is the right precinct. You can just cast a provisional and it'll be counted. Well, in fact, these ballots were not counted if they were cast in the wrong precinct. Ron Barber, the Democrat, has sued to include 133 untallied ballots. That's in a race with 161 vote margin at the moment before a recount happens. Um, the uh, federal judge, George W. Bush appointee, uh, disagreed, said, nope, we're, we're not going to include those votes. Now, this is here's one example. 81-year-old Tucson voter, voter Leah Goodwin Cesarek. She uh, was at the hearing on uh, the inclusion of these ballots last week. She went to the polling. She says, quote, she went to the polling location where she was told to vote and that poll workers 
never raised a red flag about her being in the wrong place. She said, quote, I expect my vote to be counted. I did everything I was supposed to do. And it seems the judge agreed, but still said, mm, nope, it's a garden variety election irregularity and they do not violate the due process clause. So we're not going to include those ballots. More problems in this recount that is now about to happen in uh, in Arizona. It may even be underway as we speak. Uh, the vote, and this is the one that blows me away, and I'm going to talk to uh, Bill Reisner, the attorney, about momentarily. Um, the, in Arizona, the law, the statute for recounts is not a hand recount like they had in Oregon or like they had in Maine. They're going to take this, the paper ballots that they cast in Pima and Cochise County and run them through the same computers that tallied them the first time, that tallied them either correctly or incorrectly the first time. Nobody knows because unless you hand count the paper ballots, you can't know whether the machine counted them correctly. But they're going to run them through the same computers. Now, the computers uh, that they're using have an error rate of something like uh, 0.13. That's a little bit more than a tenth of a percent. Well, a hand count, I'm sorry, a recount can only take place if the margin is less than one tenth of one percent. And that is the case uh, here in this race, and it will lead to the first congressional recount ever in the state of Arizona. So the machines themselves aren't accurate enough to recount these things. And there will be a five percent hand count that can uh, take place, a sort of an audit that will take place to check the numbers against the uh, voting, uh, against the electronic systems. But it will only be 5% unless they expand it to count more if they find that hand count varies from the, uh, from the machine count by 1% or 2%. Mind you, the margin here is less than one-tenth of 1%. One so that's not uh, satisfactory either. And yet they refuse to have a hand count. They're, in, they're insisting they're going to count it on the machines. And that's where Bill Reisner, uh, Arizona election law attorney, uh, comes in. He is filing a suit against the state's planned recount on behalf of a transpartisan group of seven plaintiffs, three Democrats, a Republican, an independent, uh, a Green and one Libertarian. Um, charging that they are doing the uh, recount in Arizona in violation of state law. Bill Reisner, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Yeah, hi, Brad. Great to have you here. Okay, um, I know there's two uh, main issues you're charging. What is it that the state of Arizona is doing wrong, as you see it, in violation of the statutes when it comes to using these same computers to count the ballots that uh, tallied them in the first place? Well, the... Uh state law in, in some wisdom has said that if the original ballots are uh, counted on uh, a uh, automatic tabulating machine, then they have to uh, do the recount with a different program than was used to count them the first time. That's, you know, some some check on that, and, and really because of the insecurity of the system, assuming the second program was a, a good one, and there mm -hmm. is a good one available, then uh, then that would be some check on it. So that, that's the statute, ARS, uh, what is it, 16664, specifically says, if you do a recount of ballots, it must be by machine, but it must be by a different program then uh, tallied them the first time, correct? Exactly. Okay. The programs to be used in the recount 
pursuant to this section, shall differ from the programs used the first time. But what they're doing is they are using the same program as the first time and simply uh, deleting uh, other races for the same computer to count using the same program. So it just, same computer counts the same ballots, hopefully, uh, but they should get the same answer. Exactly. It it will most likely spit out the same answer. So if there were uh, ballots that could not be read by that uh, particular optical scan system the first time, they won't be read most likely uh, when you use the same machine versus another program. And I know there's sort of a uh, uh, more of an open source type system called Clear Ballot that you guys have mentioned could be used here that allows scans and allows everybody to also see graphic images of the ballots to make sure they're being tallied correctly. is that right? Absolutely. You know, the the first computer, as you know, could maliciously be programmed to give the wrong answer, or there could be a bug. But if you run the same thing again, neither of those will appear. So you'll never find out. And, uh, yeah, and, and the state, incredibly, is arguing, I'm looking at your suit here, they're arguing that, oh, no, this is a different program because we've slightly uh, jiggered it a little bit and you've got uh, computer uh, experts here saying, no, that doesn't count if you just, you know, change the, I think one one of your uh, computer experts says it's like changing the the favorites on your remote control. Oh, let's have different stations instead as my favorites. You're still using the same remote control. Exactly. And that seems to be what they're doing there. Okay, I know you were in, uh, I think it was today, you were in the state Supreme Court making this case. What was their response, Bill Reisner? Well, the Supreme Court said, uh, gosh, I should uh, have filed it in uh, Maricopa County Superior Court, and so I should go up to Phoenix and filed uh, filed the case. But they knew uh, uh, assuredly that there really isn't time for that. Um, the... Uh, you know, it's just another example of, of, frankly, there's kind of a hostility with the judges in any, well, hostility against democracy, really, mm-hmm. but there, there's uh, an unwillingness to uh, uh, get involved in any hot political case, and, and, and they'll just say the words like, oh, we know how important voting is, but we got this little procedural thing, or any, any excuse they'll use, and so... They found one to dodge the issue. A hostility to democracy. That's very interesting because I know you've been in uh, in a lot of courtrooms fighting uh, on a lot of uh, election-related cases. Uh, Bill Reisner, Arizona attorney. Uh, and and I got to say, you've been in, in the courts and saying this. I've seen it in covering these issues around the country. Uh, people give a lot of lip service to democracy. But when it comes to the actual, uh, you know, meat and potatoes of what needs to be done, how you count ballots, how people can oversee their own elections, how ballots uh, should be public records. Uh, The courts don't seem to want to get involved. They want to get rid of you. Uh, One more question before I let you go, Bill. Um, I noticed in uh, AP's update on this story, uh, I had written a story on, uh, you can get all the details at bradblog.com on uh, the Arizona second congressional district race that is now being, has, has the recount started yet, by the way, Bill? Uh, this afternoon they were doing the the little show with the uh, logic and accuracy uh, testing. Oh, it's, to demonstrate. It's mean, yeah, it's pretty meaningless, but you know that's what they're doing today. To demonstrate their completely different program, they're now using no, to just, right. just, just to demonstrate that it can count 
200 ballots correctly. Okay. All right. Well, after I ran my story at Bradblog, I saw an update from Associated Press uh, that says, and maybe you can explain this to me, or I hope they got it wrong. They said the results of the recounts will be kept secret until they are presented to the judge, which is expected on December 16th. That can't be correct, can it? They're, they don't keep the results secret. The, the entire process is public, is it not? Uh, apparently not. They, uh, the, I think there's supposed to be a hearing maybe the 17th where they report those results. So I, that gives them a chance for uh, everybody, you know, for each of the election departments to uh, work out the warts, I guess, as they call it. That's incredible. I mean, will, will, are, are people able to sort of stand outside the glass window and at least watch what's going on? Well, it's pretty hard to watch what's happening inside the computer. Well, that's well, I'm, true. I'm, I'm sure you can yeah. watch them feed paper into uh a machine. Uh, amazing. And we are talking about a United States House race here, the uh, really the last undecided one in the country uh, between Ron Barber, Democrat, who replaced Gabby Giffords after she was shot, and uh, his challenger, Martha McSally, who is now ahead by, uh, according to the certified results, by about 161 votes, I think, out of... 220,000 votes cast. Uh, Bill Reisner, uh, appreciate your work out there. Uh, Thank you for representing the voters. I know it ain't easy. I know people uh, don't give you a lot of money for that. And I know a lot of courts and judges aren't happy to uh, see you when you show up. But I'm really happy you're there when problems uh, go on in Arizona, sir. Good. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, brother. We will talk to you again soon. Bill Reisner, election attorney from Pima County, Arizona. She must belong to San Francisco She must have lost her way Posting a poster of Pancho and Cisco One California day She says she believes in Robin Hood and Brotherhood And colors of green and gray And all you can do is laugh at her Doesn't anybody know how to pray? Okay, we're going to take a a very quick break here. Thanks, Arizona. Always good for a laugh. We're going to take a quick break here and uh, come back with Dr. Michael Mann unspinning climate change. Wish us luck. We'll be right back. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Like a teeny bopper runaway child Scrape off the paint from the face of a little town saint Yes, we've got the power, and that's kind of the problem. It's killing us. Welcome back to your broadcast right here on Pacifica Radio's KPFK and many other fine affiliate stations. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You can tweet me, by the way, throughout the hour. I am at the Brad Blog. If you want to treat me, tweet me over there, and of course you should. We'll be joined uh, for uh, our usual Green News report report uh, with Desi Doyen shortly here. But before that, uh, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Michael Mann, 
a physicist and climatologist, a distinguished professor of meteorology at Penn State University with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He's also the director of the Penn State Earth Science Center. He received undergraduate degrees in physics, applied math, geology, geophysics, everything else. He was one of uh, Scientific American's 50 leading visionaries in science and technology in 2002, contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the uh, uh, 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. He's also the author of more than 160 peer-reviewed edited publications and the book Dire Predictions, as well as his uh, most recent book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. Um, Always good to have him here. And as a matter of fact, I looked it up today. And uh, Michael Mann, you were last with us one year ago exactly uh, this week, uh, tomorrow to be exact. So it's been too long, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be back with you. Always good to have you back. I, I wanted to read uh, that that long introduction because I want to let uh, people understand uh, you're not some fly-by-night guy who's got an opinion about climate and science, but you actually, uh, you know, have been studying this now for years, for decades, uh, and that's why I wanted to have you on because. Uh, there was a, a fictional person who was on TV uh, uh, last week uh, claiming to have, uh, well, credits not unlike yours, making some extraordinary claims. It was on a fictional show. And I'm going to play a clip of that uh, shortly because, Mike, reporting and discussing on uh, climate change issues is difficult, as you know, for a number of reasons. It can alarm people. It can be difficult to keep their attention when you're talking about things like parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, Did you get a chance to see HBO's newsroom uh, a week or two ago when they talked about this issue? Yeah, I have seen the clip. Okay, Uh, because they talked early on how, uh, you know, oh, it's boring. It puts people to sleep. And we do, you know, the Green News report twice a week. And and it's true. You know, we try to find a way to make it interesting, but it's very difficult. Uh, So it can be hard to make interesting. And I think it can be scary, apparently, to some, at least when we tell the truth. So I want to play this clip and then get your opinion about it, your thoughts on how accurate it actually is. Because it seems pretty extraordinary. This is a clip uh, from HBO's The Newsroom. Um, Will McAvoy, the lead anchor at the fictional uh, ACN cable news network, he's played by Jeff Daniels, he's speaking with an EPA official. Now, this thing supposedly takes place last year, April of 2013. uh, And, um, well, you'll get an idea here. This is uh, Will McAvoy and uh, the folks in The Newsroom appear to be stunned with what this fictional, if you will, scientist who works at the EPA, high-ranking EPA official, uh, what he has to say. And uh, let's give it a listen, and then we'll find out how truthful uh, he is from HBO's The Newsroom. And joining us now in studio is Richard Westbrook, Deputy Assistant Administrator of the EPA. Welcome. Thank you. Mr. Westbrook, you've spent most of your professional career as a climate scientist in the public sector. Yes. Okay. Tell us about the findings in the report that was just released. The latest measurements taken at Mauna Loa in Hawaii indicate a CO2 level of 400 parts per million. Just so we know what we're talking about, if you were a doctor and we were the patient, what's your prognosis? A thousand years? Two thousand years? A person has already been born who will die due to catastrophic failure of the planet. What did he just say? Okay, can you uh, expand on that? Sure. 
Um, the last time there was this much CO2 in the air, the oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now. Two things you should know. Half the world's population lives within 120 miles of an ocean. And the other? Humans can't breathe underwater. You're saying the situation's dire. Not exactly. Um, your house is burning to the ground, the situation's dire. Your house has already burned to the ground. The situation's over. So what can we do to reverse this? Well, there's a lot we could do. Good. If it were 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, but now, no. Can you make an analogy that might help us understand? Sure. Um, it's as if you're sitting in your car, um, in your garage, with the engine running and the door closed, and you've slipped into unconsciousness, and that, that's it. What if someone comes and opens the door? You're already dead. What if the person got there in time? You'd be safe. Okay. So now what's the CO2 equivalent of the getting there on time? Shutting off the car 20 years ago. You sound like you're saying it's hopeless. Yeah. Is that the uh, administration's position or yours? There isn't a position on this any more than there's a position on the temperature at which water boils. The administration, let me try to, your administration. And don't forget, I need you to stretch wind and solar, 40. clean coal, nuclear power, raising fuel economy standards, and building a more efficient electrical grid. Yes. And? That would have been great. Let's see if we can't find a better spin. People are starting their weekends. The report says we can release 565 more gigatons of CO2 without the effects being calamitous. It says we can only release 565 gigatons. So what if we only release 564? Well, then we would have a reasonable shot at some form of dystopian post-apocalyptic life. But the carbon dioxide in the oil that we've already leased is 2,795 gigatons. So... What would all this look like? Well, mass migrations, food and water shortages, spread of deadly disease, endless wildfires, way too many to keep under control, and storms that have the power to level cities, blacken out the sky, and create permanent darkness. Are you going to get in trouble for saying this publicly? Who cares? Mr. Westbrook, we want to inform people, but we don't want to alarm them. Can you give us a reason to be optimistic? Well, that's the thing, Will. Americans are optimistic by nature. And if we face this problem head on, if we listen to our best scientists and act decisively and passionately, I still don't see any way we can survive. Okay. Richard Westbrook, Deputy Assistant Administrator of the EPA. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Newsnight. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> that was audio from the newsroom on HBO, a pretend a fictionalized interview with a climate scientist and EPA official. I'm speaking with a real climate scientist, Dr. Michael Mann. Um, uh, that was troubling. Catastrophic failure of the planet. House already burned to the ground. It's hopeless. Uh, what do you think, Michael Mann? Is that true? Well, no, it's a caricature of the actual science and the actual evidence. And, you know, this is a fictional account, and I think that it was an attempt at parody. Um, at least that's my interpretation, hmm. um, because it's, you know, somewhat absurd, uh, for example, to even refer to uh, catastrophic failure of the planet. Uh, scientifically, I don't know what that means. <laughs> now, we do talk about prospects for dangerous climate change, 
Um, and it is true that if we don't do something about our escalating carbon emissions uh, within the next you know, few years, then we are going to commit to what could reasonably be described as increasingly dangerous and potentially irreversible changes in, in, in our climate. Uh, but it's very unlikely we'll see anything along the lines of what the, uh, you know, the, the scientist in the, in, in the fictional uh, account uh, refers to. Um, we will see some bad stuff. You know, if we don't do something about this problem, then we will see increasingly negative impacts. Uh, we're already seeing negative impacts on our life. But it's not worth exaggerating uh, either the nature of those impacts or the extent to which we are already committed to them. And I think the, the piece does somewhat of a disservice by implying that we have already baked uh, that in, that there's nothing that we can do uh, to stem the tide to prevent uh, meters of sea level rise, to prevent uh, widespread, increasingly widespread drought, um, it, to prevent the sorts of catastrophic outcomes uh, that are described in the piece. Uh, there is still time to do that, and that's what hopefully is going to happen over the next few years. And this is a critical juncture right now um, as we go into uh, you know, a year from the, the Paris uh, summit, mm -hmm. um, the Paris uh, UN summit, which is probably the next opportunity for meaningful international progress in, you know, doing something, again, about our escalating carbon emissions. Well, and uh, I, I want to get to that in a moment, and uh, also the uh, Lima-Peru uh, climate uh, summit, which is, which is right now, right yeah. now, yeah. Um, but I want to press you on this point a little bit, because, uh, you know, I, I hear some things, certain things from, from scientists, uh, and, and uh, James West, I think, over at Mother Jones sort of fact-checked what this guy, this fictional character, right. was saying uh, the last time there was this much CO2 in the air. The oceans were 80 feet higher than they are now. Uh, and I, I recall seeing on um, Showtime's uh, documentary uh, series that I think you worked on, Year of Living Dangerously. Right. Um, I believe it was an interview from that where you had a scientist saying if we don't get to zero emissions uh, by the end of the century, uh, we're in big trouble. That we have to count, uh, you know, cut 70 percent emissions by the middle of this century. Are those numbers true? And what if we don't do those uh, things? So, uh, in other words, yeah. a difference between what I'm hearing from the scientists and then what I'm hearing from people saying, oh, don't worry about it. We have time. We can fix this. Yeah, we, we don't have a whole lot of time to prevent dangerous interference with the climate. And by some, you know, in some respects, we're already seeing dangerous impacts uh, of climate change here in the U.S., um, increasingly worse wildfires out west, uh, more widespread droughts, record heat waves, uh, record flooding events, um, and, you know, events like Hurricane Sandy, which were certainly made worse by human-caused climate change, we are already seeing negative impacts of climate change. So we don't have to speculate about whether that's possible. It's already happening. The question is, how bad are we willing to let it go? Now, we're very unlikely to see 80 feet of sea level rise, um, even though it is technically true that the last time we are certain that CO2 levels were as high as they are today uh, was probably several million years ago, and uh, sea level was indeed 80 feet higher. That's primarily because CO2 was sustained at those very high levels for millennia, and mm -hmm. we are not yet committed to sustaining CO2 levels um, at anything close to what they were back then 
for millennia. There's still time to stabilize CO2, to decrease our emissions, so that we, for example, do not exceed uh, 450 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. And we estimate that that is a level of CO2 where we are likely to lock in about 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit warming of the planet relative to pre-industrial time. And that for, that, that uh, 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit, 3 degrees, uh, sorry, 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, 2 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. warming is o- often used as a metric of when we enter into a truly dangerous interference with the climate system. We're not committed to that yet, and we're not committed to the most uh, profound and negative impacts of climate change yet. So, uh, but there isn't a lot of time. If we're going to prevent CO2 from crossing 450 ppm but, uh, mm-hmm. parts, per million. Yep. parts per million, then it is necessary to uh, make the sorts of cuts that you allude to, um, something uh, akin to a 70% reduction uh, of uh, CO2 emissions relative to late 20th century levels uh, by the middle of the century. Now, if you look at the commitment uh, that was made in this latest agreement between the U.S. and China, um, the the U.S. there uh, committed to lower its uh, carbon emissions by about uh, 26 to 28 uh, percent Percent, uh, relative to um, 2005 levels Mm -hmm. by 2025 in in a decade. And and China, which of course is industrializing and doesn't have the legacy that we have of several centuries of fossil fuel burning, is in a different uh, position, but they have committed to bring their emissions to a peak, which will be critical if we're going to avoid crossing that uh, 450 parts per million limit, um, bringing their emissions to a peak by 2030. So what you have are the two largest emitters on the planet, uh, both with very different histories of carbon emissions, but the two largest current emitters on the planet, China and the U.S., uh, coming to an agreement that sort of sets the stage for what we might hope will happen uh, next year um, in Paris for a truly global treaty um, with all of the major industrial nations and the developing world making actionable and mandatory uh, cuts and in so and and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that you feel all of this is possible maybe I've become uh, over time uh, less optimistic uh, and of course I'll say something to you dr. Michael Mann that I'm sure a uh, few people say uh, well you've made me feel better Thank you. Um, I guess you don't hear that a lot. I do get concerned, though, because I hear that, you know, one thing from scientists uh, that sound very alarming. And then I hear, uh, you know, other scientists saying there's still time. Regenda Prachari, the uh, head of the uh, U.N. climate, I guess the IPCC, saying that we still have time. We can do something about that. But that seems counter to the actual numbers that I'm hearing. So I'm going to take you at your word that we can get out of this uh, mess if we take action. I'm still very concerned. Um, well, you know, the, it, it's sometimes presented as if it's a cliff that we're mm-hmm. going to fall off if we, you know, emit an, a, you know, a, a, another part of, CO, uh, you know, per, per million CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, and, and that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a, a steadily a down-sloping highway, and it gets steeper and steeper and more dangerous as we continue past that highway. But if we miss, you know, the, the 450 parts per million exit, it doesn't mean 
that we give up. We go for the 460 parts per million CO2 exit. If we miss right. that, and, and the point is that the farther we go down that highway, the worse it gets. There's still time to make sure that we do not commit to the worst potential changes in our climate. My partner, Desi Doyen here, producer of this show and uh, my co-host on the Green News Report, has a, uh, has a question, a thought for you, Michael Mann. Hi, Mike. Hi, <laughs> I had a quick question. There was a new study that uh, published this week by uh, Dr. Catherine Rick and, or Ricky and Professor Ken Caldera of the Carnegie Institute for Science. Now, if I understand the press materials correctly, this new study makes it sound like the warming effects of CO2, like if we emit CO2 today, that it's not going to take 100 years or more for that warming to be felt, that it's going to be sooner than that. And that has both, if I understand it correctly, good points and bad points. Have you had a chance to look at that study? Can you enlighten? No, I haven't looked at this particular study, um, but it it is certainly the case that um, if you put a CO2 molecule into the atmosphere, it is acting as a greenhouse gas now. And so um, you do increase the radiative effects of uh, the the greenhouse gases on our planet. Now, uh, it's also true that the oceans tend to absorb uh, some of that surface heating, and the oceans take a long time, a much longer time to warm up because they have a a much greater amount of what we call thermal inertia. There's just a lot, a very large mass of ocean water, um, and the surface heating diffuses slowly down into the ocean into the depths of the ocean and so it takes a while for it to warm up and so that actually is a, a, a somewhat of a dampening uh, effect that even as we increase the co2 concentrations in the atmosphere some of that heat is penetrating into the oceans but eventually that heating saturates and eventually uh, we do commit to the full amount of warming associated with that co2 addition Professor Mann, I've got just another minute or two here, but I want to uh, get to this point because I think this is really actually important news. It's been kind of quiet, but I want to bring this point out. Uh, This uh, from Climate Progress. On Sunday, Germany's biggest utility, E.ON, announced plans to split into two companies and focus on renewables in a major shift that could be an indicator of broader changes to come across the utility sector. E.ON will spin off its nuclear oil and gas operations in an effort to confront a drastically altered energy market. Um... It seems to me, I'd love your thoughts on this, but this seems to me to be a rather important development. You've got a giant energy company essentially sort of segregating out its uh, its fossil fuel, the fossil fuel part of its business. Um, is this an important indicator of where we're going? And is this about, uh, you know, the, the concerns that uh, assets may have to be abandoned, uh, stranded assets, as, as they call it, and they're sort of trying to save themselves by doing this? Does this indicate uh, more to come along these lines? I do. I think this is a very optimistic sign. And, uh, and there are reasons for optimism, as we've already said, this uh, agreement between China and the U.S. to make major cuts in their carbon emissions. Um, That's extremely significant. And now here we have this example where uh, Germany, which is sort of uh, uh, somewhat ahead uh, of uh, uh, much of the rest of the world right now in terms of their commitment to renewable energy, um, they've done something very important and very thoughtful. They've recognized that fossil fuel burning is doing damage to the planet. It's doing damage uh, to our economy. And so you have to price that into the market. And the way that they've 
sort of level the playing field so that renewables uh, can compete with fossil fuel energy is to take that into account by providing incentives through a feed-in tariff um, so that this incentivizes wind and solar energy and geothermal energy. And, that, and that's essentially, to, so people understand feed-in tariff, that's essentially a, a carbon tax, right? Is well, no, it's paying rooftop solar owners for generating electricity. So oh, in, in Germany, they set up a policy right. to incentivize rooftop solar by saying, hey, rooftop solar homeowners, if you sell your energy back, we're going to give you the full retail rate. Okay. So, exactly. So if you've got an un- unlevel playing field, there are two ways to, to level it, right? You can either penalize one side or you in- can incentivize the other. And so what they're doing, and it has the same net effect as something like a carbon tax, but instead it's uh, providing a direct incentive to uh, non-carbon energy. And with that, that incentive, um, they have now uh, basically achieved uh, what's known as grid parity, uh, which is to say that renewables uh, are competitive with fossil fuels right now, and that will only get more so. And so, you know, the, the major energy producers are looking at the, you know, they're seeing the writing on the wall, and they're recognizing, as you allude to, that these fossil fuel um, resources are going to be stranded assets. They're going to be worthless, um, unsupportable, worthless. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they've seen that the writing is on the wall. It isn't like this is a, you know, environmentally driven uh, uh, company. Mm-hmm. This is a for-profit uh, energy company that recognizes that they will not be profitable uh, because of this new environment if they continue to invest in fossil fuel energy. And so that paves the way. I mean, it provides a roadmap for what we need to see uh, across the rest of the world. Now, Germany is currently meeting uh, 30% of their energy demand through renewables. Here in the U.S., we're only meeting about 10% of our energy demand through Mm. renewables. So we're way behind uh, um, Germany, we're way behind China in terms of what we're investing in renewable energy. And the question is, does the U.S. want to fall behind the rest of the world in its competitiveness because it gets left behind in this transition to a green economy? Last question on that point, uh, Michael Mann. If China is going under this new agreement that uh, Obama struck recently, uh, if China is going to meet its goals, uh, I understand they will have to create an entire United States worth of renewable energy in the next 16 years in order to meet that goal. A, is that possible for China? And B, if it's possible for them to create a United States worth of renewable energy in 16 years, What's stopping us from doing that? Uh, The answers are yes, it's possible. And the second question, uh, nothing. Nothing is stopping us uh, other than political will. Um, The only limitation, the only obstacle right now to tackling this problem is the political will to do it. Once again, that would be Mr. Optimism, Dr. Michael Mann, a distinguished professor of Penn State University, author of The Hockey Stick and The Climate Wars, which is now out in paperback, makes a great Christmas gift, has a lot of happy stories in it like those. Uh, Mike Mann, always great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Feel better, Desi Doyen? 
Actually, yeah. Do you? I, I do. <laughs> um, it's nice to hear him sort of put some context into these scary numbers that we've been hearing. And I just want to point out also, we had uh, a caller call in real quick and said, oh man, when you played that clip from the newsroom, I had my, uh, I had a little uh, uh, moment of War of the Worlds moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where people will be hearing this yeah. and thinking, yeah. If you come in too late, <laughs> you might not realize that that's a clip from a fictional TV show. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's fictional, but uh, I, I referred to this earlier, James West over at the Climate Desk at Mother Jones, uh, he actually fact-checked, you know, the points, the facts, one, you know, the, the claims clip. in that clip one by one. And he said, informative, accurate, if a little heavy on the doom and gloom. Yes. The part about, you know, darkness uh, covering the earth forever is, is a little bit, I think, a little overstating it. You hope. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> you hope. And but Michael Mann made me feel better, so I know. that's great. He made me feel better, too. And, uh, we can do this. Which is, well, we'll see if we can. Um, so uh, uh, thank you uh, for uh, for uh, getting Michael Mann on there. And I guess we have still more green news ahead. This is our latest green news report. The window for action is rapidly closing. UN Climate Summit underway to map the future of global warming. Nine miles of the Pacific Coast Highway west of Los Angeles are still blocked by mud and debris. California hit by record rain in the midst of record drought. Oil prices dropped again yesterday. The global implications of falling oil prices, plus... The hospital mortuary can't cope with the dead body. The toxic legacy of the world's worst industrial accident... 30 years later. All of those industrial accidents and toxic legacies straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Uh, we can't shift that scientific reality. So what we have to do is shift the political reality. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Is it my imagination or is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation getting into our snarky comment game? Yeah, well... Good luck with that. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, just so our listeners out here in California do not get alarmed, that stuff that is falling out of the sky, that is known as rain. Uh, <laughs> and it has been falling here now for a couple of days, which is something that people who may have moved here two or three years ago have never seen before. Yeah, it's pretty shocking that finally California, amid a record drought, is now finally getting some rain. Record rain, no less, although it's nowhere near enough to end the record drought. It is causing all kinds of problems, however, given the fact that we haven't had any substantial rain for about the past three years in the midst of this record drought. So we've had wildfires, the ground is scorched, and now we're seeing mudslides and... A lot of evacuations up and down northern and southern California. Yep, it's the swing in extreme weather events from extreme drought to extreme rain. I wish someone had warned us about all of this. Speaking of which, what else do you have for us today? Funny you should ask. Today in Lima, Peru, the United Nations Climate Summit is now underway for the next two weeks in the next phase of negotiations to achieve a binding international treaty to cut global greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming. The longer we delay, the more difficult, the more intractable, and the more expensive actions will be. That was UN Chief Scientist Dr. Rajendra Pachari again warning the delegates that time is running out. They're attempting to achieve a binding international treaty 
to cut greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming, even as global warming is already changing weather patterns around the world. Or as the Australian Broadcasting Corporation might say. Yeah, well, good luck with that. <laughs> well, this phase of negotiations is getting to the brass tacks, divvying up responsibilities of who will cut emissions, how much and how soon, and how those cuts will be verified going forward. Thanks to the recent historic agreement between the U.S. and China to cut their emissions, the diplomats say they're optimistic that other nations will follow through as well, increasing the odds of an effective treaty to be signed in Paris next year. But there's a catch. Oil prices dropped again yesterday, this time approaching $70 a barrel after the OPEC cartel decided not to cut production levels. Prices for crude have dropped by more than 30 percent since the summer. That's good news for drivers and the U.S. economy, but it has serious implications for climate change and for volatile countries whose budgets are based on fossil fuel revenue like Iran, Venezuela and Russia. On PBS NewsHour, oil industry analyst Kevin Book says OPEC may be trying to put pressure on U.S. oil producers. A lot of our new oil, the shale oil and the oil from other tight formations that you hear so much about, actually is a little bit expensive relative to the world market. Analysts say OPEC may be trying to starve out U.S. oil producers who have very low profit margins. Finally... This week marks a sober anniversary, 30 years since the disaster in Bhopal, India, the worst industrial tragedy in world history, when a massive cloud of poison gas leaked from a Union Carbide pesticide factory into the city. The hospital mortuary can't cope with the dead body. It was the worst industrial disaster in history. On that toxic night in December 1984, the wind direction determined whether you lived or died. Within three days, 8,000 people were dead. Tens of thousands more died later. Half a million ingested the poison and survived. The toxic legacy continues today with high rates of severe birth defects and cancers. The plant is still there 30 years later, still leaking toxic chemicals. But U.S.-based Dow Chemical, which bought Union Carbide after the disaster, says it is not responsible for cleaning up the toxic site. Listening to some of the old reports, this note from John Cochran on NBC News back in 1984 as the disaster was unfolding is troubling, to say the least. Another accident on this scale seems unlikely. But India does not have enough skilled workers and inspectors to enforce safety regulations. So industrial safety will largely be left up to the conscience of Western companies here. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we could not get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Download our reports anytime via iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And the time will come when you see we're all one and life flows on within you and without you. Before we go, uh, we have just a few minutes here. We are following, of course, uh, the non-indictment of the uh, New York City police officer who uh, placed African-American Eric Garner in a chokehold and killed him. 
uh, earlier this year. It's hard to imagine now, but back in the 60s on many university campuses, this is related, free speech and political organizing were actually banned or restricted on campus. That all changed 50 years ago this week on December 2nd, 1964, at the University of California, Berkeley, when Mario Savio stood on top of a police car amid a sea of student protesters and made his now infamous speech. Savio was a student leader and civil rights activist who had just returned from registering voters in Mississippi. He demanded that the university lift restrictions on the students' right to free speech and academic freedom. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. That was Mario... Savio, 50 years ago this week at UC Berkeley, marking a pivotal moment in U.S. history in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. Uh, But his words have done more than that. His words have compelled ordinary people to rise up and fight for what is right and seem to echo in the protests we're seeing around the country even now, from Occupy Wall Street to the Ferguson protests over the white cop killing of an unarmed black man to the protests sure to erupt following the announcement that there would be no indictment against uh, New York City officer Daniel Pantaleo in the choking death of Eric Garner. The echoes continue 50 years later. All right, uh, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to our board operator G and uh, pinch hitter Zoo this afternoon. Also, to my thank, uh, my uh, thanks to my guests Bill Reisner and Dr. Michael Mann. We will be back with you soon. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog and, of course, at bradblog.com. Good night, America.